Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello, fam, and welcome back to another episode of Reclaim Me. I am so excited to be back in the swing of things and coming back to you after a short two-week break. So thank you all for sticking around, and I'm sorry that you had to miss out on two weeks' worth of episodes, but don't worry, I have so many lined up ready for you that are just absolutely amazing with so many interesting, amazing, wonderful, inspiring guests as well. So I'm very excited to bring those episodes to you. I just wanted to give you a few reminders at the beginning of this episode again as well. So if you head to the show notes of this episode or if you go to www.reclaimme.com.au, you'll be able to see all of our resources, all of the information about episodes. You'll be able to see a bit more information into the process for how I record with people and what the process for that is. You can also submit an inquiry with me. You can submit if you want to get involved and share your own story with the Reclaim Me podcast Or if you want to just send me an email, you can also do that via the website as well. Don't forget as well that we are also on Instagram and TikTok at Reclaim Me Pod. And you've also got access to the Survivor Support Network, which again, via the link in the bio or the show notes of this episode, you'll be able to get access to that Survivor Support Network. However, today I have a really amazing guest, Andrew Carpenter, who's joining me. This is a bit of a different episode and we do go into a lot of procedural and process things, which I think so many people who've experienced violent and abusive crimes will find this a really interesting. Now, this is part one and we will have a second part that will drop next week. Let's get stuck into this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by a fellow Australian who is coming to us from South Australia. Welcome Andrew Carpenter. Thanks for having me. It's been a minute. I'm so happy to have you on. Do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners who don't know who you are? Um, My name's Andrew Carpenter. I'm a solicitor in South Australia. 
Um, I specialize in uh, abuse claims and about four, almost four years ago now, I started uh, a law change uh, campaign known as Super for Survivors, uh, where we're trying to make sure the defenders can't hide money in superannuation anymore and to make sure that this superannuation can be used towards satisfying judgment sums or be used for compensation against survivors of sexual abuse. I love that so much because it's something that like people really don't have any insight of or knowledge of, you know, until you're in it, it's one of those things. And it's, it's great that you're campaigning for this. Where did that start for you? Like, what was the, was there a case that you had that just pissed you off and you were like, I, I need to lead this or where were you? I think most cases in abuse matters, I do completely piss me off from the onset. It's, it's, I mean, I've been doing this for 12 years now and it never gets easier. And it's, it's weird. It's just the same pattern you see in every offender. It's, you know, there's nothing, anything that surprises me. And it was actually my mum that um, helped me start the ball wrong with this change. Uh, she used to work in superannuation and um, she told me back in about 2018 that the Liberal government was looking at passing uh, legislation to enable people to actually access uh, money from superannuation uh, for child sex matters. And every quarter when my mum had their, or had a, um, meetings, I'd always ask, oh, is there any news to this? And um, in 2019, in October, my son was born and in early 2020, we started putting him in childcare. And after doing child sex abuse matters for years, I finally then gone, oh, I've got to put my, my child in with complete strangers. And that's when I just had a you know, come to Jesus moment, so to say, where I just went, all right, this law changes there, nothing's happening with it. I might as well start trying to, to push it and, yeah, start it in early 2020. Yeah, it's really great. And I think so many people have that realisation when they have kids because, like, the vulnerability is really realised when you're caring for children full-time. It's a conversation I've had with so many victim survivors or parents as well who maybe, you know, have heard me talk about my case or my experience and then they've looked at their own children and they've started to kind of really understand the magnitude of being a child and the vulnerability of that. But would you mind maybe giving, do you have an example of like what the super kind of law changes mean? Like what would it mean in practice for somebody who's not able to access it now because of the law and what it would mean if they were able to access it, if the, if it changes. Yeah. I mean, any, what you see with a lot of civil matters, for instance, is whenever an offender is getting sued, what they'll do is they'll have their usual narcissistic behavior where they'll put all their money in their lawyer's trust account and they'll defend it. Um, especially the criminal side, they will keep defending the criminal side. They'll appeal They'll take every um, route possible to try and make sure that they can prevent a survivor's voice from being heard. And then when the matter goes to a civil claim, a lot of the time there's a judgment against them and they just simply declare bankruptcy and that debt's wiped. Um, In fraud matters, for instance, if you defraud someone and you declare bankruptcy, bankruptcy doesn't extinguish the fraud debt. Now, what I'm trying to say is that there's this loophole that so many offenders are exposing or abusing um, by simply declaring bankruptcy and legally capitulating their assets and hiding assets in superannuation. Once you put money in superannuation, it's seen as a protected asset, so you can't touch it effectively. There's some ways around it, 
Um, but to do that, you have to bankrupt someone, and once you bankrupt them, all their money's gone. Now, the issue with people that abuse children, it's usually you know, middle-aged, white-collar men, and I say men because it's you know, 99.9% of the time it's a male that's abused someone, and they, they've worked for years, they've got a lot of money in superannuation, and if they declare bankruptcy, guess what? Their superannuation is set. So if you've got someone that's been working since 1985, they have superannuation. Most people might not have houses, but they have that big pool of money sitting back there to retire upon. And I'm seeing a lot of offenders actually going to jail or when the the off chance they do go to jail, they come out after clearing bankruptcy and they come to their pot of gold superannuation fund and they can just basically live off that while their survivors um, can't touch them at all. And that's a real injustice we're seeing. A survivor suffers a life sentence because of this and they can never be made whole you know a lot of survivors i know that i've represented over the years can't afford food because they need medication to be able to function properly yet many of their offenders get out of jail and declare bankruptcy but they're able to live off their superannuation yeah and it's it's just for for everyday living things as well it's to you know, give you a chance to have some time off work and not earn a full-time income while you recover from the damage that was done. You know, it's it's being able to access therapies and not all therapies are, you know, deducted off the Medicare levy as well. Like if you want to go and get things like EMDR, which is one of the best trauma therapies that there is, I don't think that that's actually deductible off Medicare yet. So a lot of people that actually have to meet the upfront cost and you think if if someone can get a large lump sum from an offender a lot of that will go in in trauma costs um if there's inpatient facilities available imagine the good it would happen if someone can go into a psychiatric rehabilitation center for 30 or 60 days and get some extensive therapy to really come out and be able to function like a normal human society that's what's what's one of the big things that um, I think the redress scheme, a lot of the monies that's been pointed towards that, that could obviously be funded into each state having their own rehabilitation centre to actually treat. And that's the biggest thing here, to, to treat people, because a, a lot of people can come out on the other side with this. But unfortunately, the treatment costs money. And if their offender buries all their assets, they can't touch it and get the treatment they need. You know, it's it's reparations in many ways for what's been done, but it's also, it could just be removing a bloody burden. You know, if you're a parent of multiple children who works full time and English is your second language, you can't stop work. You can't just not go, you know, you actually have to keep food on the table. There's a risk of homelessness there. Like as uh, somebody escaping domestic and family violence, you know, there, there are so many financial issues that are, brought up and it's not to make victim survivors who win civil claims rich you know and I don't think anybody listening to this podcast would think that but it's saying you know if there's a judgment made that this person is guilty and say there's a hundred thousand dollars that needs to be paid back to them but that offender's already moved a hundred thousand dollars into their superannuation then are you saying that like the law just accepts that that won't happen and it's just we dust our hands and that's done? What what the law is suggesting is to make sure that the protected assets are removed for matters relating to child sexual abuse matters because um, there is not one legal justification you can make for abusing a child. 
And, you know, I've had politicians say, well, you know, what about murder? What about you know, other forms of crimes? And I said, look, there's always a legal defence for murder. You know, someone can claim self-defence, someone can claim protection of another, but there's not one legal argument or legal justification for abusing a child. And if you are committing a, an act against a child for your own interests and you are effectively um, removing any chance that they would have to reach their full potential and earn a living and retire with their own superannuation, then why shouldn't that be up for grabs? I mean, if you look at the conviction rates, there was a Victorian Law Reform Institute from April this year which showed that every 1,000 uh, reports of abuse, only 100 go to the police, six get convicted, and three get overturned in appeal. So that's 0.003% conviction rate for reporting, which is absolutely abysmal. And you have the 9997 of people who don't get criminal convictions, but you don't need a criminal conviction to sue civilly. There's different um, standards of proof. So um, in the criminal sphere, you need a proof beyond reasonable doubt, but civil, it's the balance of probabilities. And I always use the example of O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson um, got off because prosecutors weren't able to uh, proved beyond reasonable doubt that he committed the murder because there was a cop that basically admitted to lying at the very end of the trial. But when O.J. Simpson got sued, uh, he got found to be liable for the deaths and therefore he had to pay damages. So a lot of people often get dissuaded by the police saying, look, we can't charge him, and they think that's game over. But no, if if you go down the civil route, um, they're not protected. They don't have the right to silence. They have to... Um, participate in proceedings and at least run the gauntlet that way. And you think if there's a lot of evidence in, in favour of a survivor, you're not you know, reporting at the time, but if they can um, get anecdotal evidence where they can say, well, their parents realised a change of personality when they were younger, they've been diagnosed with trauma, they've reported to doctors over the years, uh, they can succeed in, in civil action. So it's it's really just finding the, the right justice for survivors and I mean, the interesting thing about this is from day one that I've been approached with, I'm not a survivor. I've never endured any um, sexual abuse. And that's why people are shocked at why I'm pushing this change so hard. And it's because that I've had to tell that many people over the past 12 years that I'm sorry, like your offender has divested the assets. You can't touch them. And I thought if no one's going to stand up and try and help these people, then why not do it? You have the personal experience in dealing with it, as you've just said, and I think you get to see it from a different perspective, which is incredibly infuriating. You look at the conviction rate being so low and you look at the abysmal sentences and you think there's no real deterrence here. Like there was a New South Wales study earlier this year. It's uh, uh, child sexual abuse over the past 10 years has gone up 4.5% per year. I mean, the sentences are appalling. Look at ASIC, for instance, the, the governing body over companies in Australia. They had, in 2021, they had 18 matters referred to court, but they issued $150 million in fines. Now, ASIC are basically saying, hey, we're actually getting better luck or better um, success rates with fining people for um, breaching the Corporations Act and breaching normal rules of trade and governance by finding them instead of prosecuting because you could prosecute someone for you know doing something very dodgy in in a company and they might get a suspended sentence or you know you're disqualified from running a company for three years but they've made a lot of money doing it 
but it's when you start finding people that there's a real risk to it. I mean, if you're a good driver, what would you care about most if you get a speeding fine? The points or the financial uh, implications? People don't speed because of the financial side of it. And if the judicial system is not adequately punishing these offenders, then what's the risk? Like you're, you're not seeing a person be being arrested with 10 images. You're seeing a person being arrested with hundreds of thousands of images and they get you know, a six-month suspended sentence. How is that a deterrence? I mean, everyone during COVID did home detention effectively by sitting at home and watching TV and going out for necessities. But in order to deter something like this, you need to really have a punishment. And if the courts aren't going to, or if the parliament's not going to pass legislation to uh, have a greater uh, sentence rate or uh, minimum sentences, then the only way to, to try and deter this is by imposing financial sanctions. Yeah, and you're effectively talking about something I've been really kind of openly saying because I do believe that we've now decriminalised sexual abuse in, in many forms, and that includes child. And so many people find that so crazy. They go, somebody was convicted of child sexual abuse and they got a fine? That was their criminal conviction. And you go, yeah, like Jen Brown, who has been on this podcast before her grandfather was found guilty of three different separate counts of molestation of her when she was a child. And he was given like the most ridiculously short sentence. I think it actually ended up being a suspended sentence. They gave him a good behavior bond and he pled guilty. So they obviously look at that favorably. And then they gave him a $1,200 fine. And that $1,200 was actually put into a trust. And if he didn't be a naughty boy again, so if he didn't break his good behavior bond, they gave it back. They gave yeah. him the money back. How's that a deterrent? Like a suspended sentence is basically don't do it again. Or home detention is, you know, oh, just sit at home and watch Netflix all day and go to work and come out. Like you, you're seeing a lot of these people getting their you know, early discount pleading guilty and then what? Where's the deterrence? If, if you're an, a, an offender on the verge of offending and you see, or sorry, if you're a groomer on the verge of offending and you see someone on the news that's engaged in behaviour that you're planning and they get a suspended sentence, you're like, what, what's the risk? Like, what, what's going to happen to me? Like, but if you start saying, oh, God, this, this guy lost his entire life savings. Oh, I, I don't want to do that. So, I mean, I've, I've been saying from day one, the only people against this change in law would be pedophiles themselves. That's the only people that would be against this because you, you think of the financial cost of child sexual abuse survivors on the Australian public. It's not just the Centrelink, it's the PBS, it's uh, ongoing medical treatment. There was, a, there was a Braveheart study back a, a year or two ago and they said that the the annual cost to child sexual abuse to the Australian taxpayer could be in the vicinity of $30.1 billion per year. And you think that is absolutely massive, and that's effectively the offender saying the taxpayer is going to indemnify our crimes. If you turn around and say, we'll pass this change, you're going to see deterrence, adequate compensation, and you're going to see justice being served. It's an absolute no-brainer from where we're coming from. Absolutely. And it shouldn't be people who have survived these crimes who have to suffer in silence. And I kind of understand what you mean by that. Maybe the deterrent for some politicians might be if we take away somebody's entire life savings, e.g. their super, 
then they're going to have to be supported by Centrelink ongoing and that's going to be a massive financial burden. And I understand that. But, again, like what you're saying is, I guess, like flip the script. If you start to give the people who are victimised that kind of financial freedom, then the cost to the taxpayers and the public is going to be reduced a lot and it will go up the other end. But, again, is that not going to lead to more if the visibility of how much the government is spending on giving money to convicted child sex offenders, wouldn't that force them to then further change their policies and processes and programs? The cost implications, if you think, and that's a politician raised that point to me, it was saying, well, the taxpayer is going to have to fund the retirement of offenders. I said, all right, what would be a bigger tax burden on the Australian public? A person from 67 years to life? or a person from 18 years to life. Because many of these offenders have been working for many years and they've got all this money in super and, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's a tax saving for the public if this um, law changes. And if you think even if with the estimated $30 billion or $31 billion a year, um, if that was minimised, say, if, 50% of spending dropped off. Imagine what that $15 billion could do uh, for the country per year. The national debt is what, $700 billion. You could start chipping away at that. Yeah, this is not a, a thing where it's going to be, oh, you know, this is going to send so many people on Centrelink. It's going to actually prevent people from going on Centrelink because a lot of the people who need it, who need the support they can get, can actually finally have the funds available to get that treatment and you see someone losing their life savings they might go oh i don't want to do that because i might just you know just pump the brakes on that and not offend and um i mean that's really the the purpose of this change is to make sure that this insidious crime stops and really to make sure that australia is going to be the worst place on the planet to abuse because you lose your freedom and your life savings yeah, and here, here to that, I think I couldn't agree more. It's um, it's now you know effectively just a joke because it's not taken seriously as we've discussed. And and you're right as well because most of these offenders, the studies and everything says that most offenders have more than one victim. I think a study that the FBI did as well said that people that were convicted of having child pornography that at the time of sentencing who said that they didn't have contact offenses, they actually did have about 14 contact offences on average when they went in and did a study that they didn't actually, they weren't going to be held criminally liable. They said, you can tell us the truth. And on average, they had 14 contact offences. So you've got offenders that more often than not will have more than one victim in their wake. And again, if you think about this from a purely financial burden point of view, the, the wake of victims that an offender leaves behind them, you know, as opposed to just one, you know, like you're yeah. saying, if it's just them that we're having to fund the retirement of, then, yeah, that's whatever, that's one person. The amount of people that they've impacted and that they've horribly, you know, hurt through their lifetime is much more than that. And by doing what you're doing, it's giving those people a really different chance. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, and, and you're never seeing a person with one image. It's always, you know, terabytes. It's ridiculous amounts. And I was um, I was on the Ray Hadley show um, two weeks ago with um, Adam from Fighters Against Child Abuse Australia, who's a joint super survivors, and Russell Manser as well. And um, Ray was saying, you know, how it's, it's getting bad. And I've actually pulled out my phone, and in South Australia, in the district court, you can actually see the matters in and what the charges were. And that day, there were 22 matters in the District Court of South Australia, and out of those 22 cases, 12 of them were related to child sexual abuse. Now, the media don't report on a lot of them because 93% of um, matters relate to someone that's known to the offender. So you can't identify an offender if it's going to identify the survivor. So in the in the charge list, it would be, you know, you know, RS is charged with sexually abusing his daughter or his niece or his cousin, and that could identify them. And you think, you know, tr- that's more than 50% of matters in co- that court that day related to child abuse. And that's the state, state we're saying. I did another interview, um, I think about a month ago, or maybe two months ago, and the same thing. I pulled out my phone, and on that day, there was 43 cases in court. 12 of them were child sex related, and that was what 30 something percent. So, you know, you're not imagine um, if you were seeing, you know, 12 out of 22 cases were murder. You know, it's the latest um, statistics show that one in three girls and one in five boys will endure some form of sexual abuse before they're 18. And you think that is absolutely shocking if it was one in three girls and one in five boys dying of drink driving or getting murdered or burning houses down, imagine how quickly the laws would be changed. 
Uh, one of the biggest issues I've had day one with trying to get this super change is that every politician says it is so hard to change super laws. And I said, all right, I call BS on that because when COVID hit, it was 10 days before the, the parliament changed laws to enable early access of superannuation. And then February of this year, um, the the treasurer announced that anyone who had more than $3 million in superannuation is going to get taxed 30%. So these are two instances which showed that the government was easily able to change superannuation laws for their own benefit, but they're still not changing it for this cause, which, again, is going to save the taxpayers and deter people from offending. And the scary thing of that as well is that it's such an underreported, underprosecuted, underknown crime. So if you're thinking about the magnitude of the amount of things that are in court, versus the amount of people that haven't come forward yet or haven't come forward and never will um, or didn't meet the burden of proof to bring it to a court setting as well. Like it is, the problem is is staggering. And what I'm telling a lot of people now is that, especially with historical matters, they go to a police station and they just say, oh, it's been, you know, on average 33 years it takes to report uh, in South Australia. And they say, oh, well, you know, it's hard to convict someone from 33 years ago and I tell them off the bat, just sue right away. Don't even bother. If you if the police are saying, oh, you know, it's too long ago, just sue. Yeah, because there's a lot of things in civil court that you can not do in criminal court, as in cross-examine the offender. Um, they don't have the right to silence in this. They can try and be quiet, but then you can say, all right, well, we're going to try and draw some inferences on here or you know, believe the survivor. You don't need to prove this beyond reasonable doubt. You just have to convince the judge that on the balance of probabilities, this happened. So um, I had one guy a while ago, he um, he had um, matters with police where they they wanted to investigate and, I mean, he remembered what colour underwear he was wearing. He even remembered um, the brand name of the wardrobe in the guy's room, things like that. But the police said, oh, yeah, there's not enough evidence. But when he sued, he won because he could prove that on the balance of probabilities. And a lot of people get very disheartened when the police say, we can't do anything. And if it's been historical, I say, don't even bother. If you don't think that the police will believe you, just sue civilly. Go see a lawyer right away and put the offender through the ringer. You know, make sure they have to be cross-examined. You know, make sure their computers get access to. Make sure they have to provide affidavit material. You, know, you look at high-profile abuse cases that are in the media in the past you know, 12 to 24 months, people look at that and think, why would, I, why would I subject myself to that? But then in the civil side, it's, hey, they get the power back, you know. The offender doesn't have this control over them. The offender has to talk now. People who have historical cases aren't going to the police. Like, I still think there is a place for that, and I don't want anybody listening to think that's not for them. Um, but I, I really agree with what you're saying as well because you know don't let that be the only thing you know you have other options it's so important but from a like this is just me not understanding the system as well as like if if I think what we've always seen like you know when you made that OJ Simpson reference it went from criminal to civil so you can go from a criminal court to a civil court that's the way that it goes can you ever go the other way and go from civil and go actually they were they were found guilty. The balance of probability said that that it was that way. Can you then use any of that evidence maybe to back you in to go into a criminal trial? 
Yeah, I mean, police often don't um, unless there's a fully-fledged confession, but that rarely happens. Um, but I think, touching a point before about people reporting, I, I think it's I think it's a matter where police need to actually change the way that they take these original statements because a lot of the time if someone goes to a police station, yeah, they don't want to be in a, a closed room with a, a male. I think the way around this would be at least have some form of trauma-trained uh, individuals present when someone's reporting child sexual abuse because that way, you know, instead of taking two or three goes to do a statement and making more amendments, a lot of the times there's trauma-informed people, they can give people breaks or figure out what's triggering them. I think that's the, the one thing that needs to be done by police at the entry level to try and make sure that people do get a fair crack when they report to police officers because anyone that's suffering from trauma, you know, they have panic attacks, have brain fog, they might say the wrong thing and want to change it later and they get confused and they, they don't want to go down that path. But I think from the front end, if the police are going to spend money and use resources to help survivors of sexual abuse, that's one thing that needs to be put on first. Or even people don't realise that they can bring a support person with them to a police station. So you know, just because one police officer says we're not going to run this, doesn't mean it's over forever. You can go back into another police station and you know, people I've seen in civil matters for years, people will give one statement and then six months later they'll remember something differently and you could put that in a, in a civil claim where some police officers might go, oh, you, know, you didn't raise that at the start. But again, if there was a trauma-informed person, they could actually see that. Um, but, yeah, I, there's been there was a case in South Australia of a, a priest called Father Fleming that he sued an advertiser for defamation because they did a an expose um, where they interviewed some alleged victims of his, um, and he sued the advertiser for defamation. And during the course of the trial, there was a lot of information that came out which could have ended up in a criminal charge, but didn't. Um, but I haven't seen it go the other way. No, I mean it is possible. Um, but I haven't seen it in, in 12 years, that's for sure. It's really interesting as well because you'd think like, you know, it would have some weight in a criminal setting. Oh, it actually made it through this burden of proof. We have enough to kind of maybe bring a criminal case against them because the balance of probability says they are guilty. Um, the, the, I do find that. It would be seen as 50.1%. You know, yeah. it, oh, it has to be 100%. So that's why a lot of um, a lot of police don't like running matters, especially if it's say from forty years ago. If someone can't remember what they were wearing, what the other person was wearing, because they they think we can't prove this beyond reasonable doubt. Um, but I mean, there, there's other ways that people can actually get up on on criminal matters. But um, I'm not a criminal lawyer, that's for sure. But I've just, in my experience, I've seen that people who don't get um, convictions are able to get justice in another way. So if a police officer says there's not enough to actually charge, it's not a full stop. There's yeah. a semicolon and there's always a different way you can run these sorts of things. And there are people around the world that are doing this better than us as well that we can learn from. And no, I don't mean to say that there are police forces that have this completely, you know, work, worked out, you know, fully, but Sarah Murray uh, came on about sexual abuse from her father 40 years after it occurred. And, you know, she did get a criminal conviction and I think he went to prison for eight years. And a lot of the evidence that they used was corroborative evidence, you know, where somebody yeah. 
remembered that she had said that when she was 12, you know, in school. And I think there's that CSI effect that many of us have where it's just like Horatio Kane is going to take his sunglasses off and see DNA from the other side of the room. And there's this weird kind of uh, vibe or feeling out there that circumstantial evidence does not matter. But in my opinion, like circumstantial evidence can prove that nobody else could have committed that crime, which does lead to a lot. And I only say that like just bouncing off what you said regarding police officers and their interviewing techniques needing to be improved, there are agencies who've done that really well. And I don't know if it's an ego thing or if it's just being out of touch or if it's not listening to and addressing these crimes because they're too hard to listen to and deal with that we we seem to be stuck and we're not progressing forward with improving. Yeah, I've, I've seen um, matters where police officers have effectively just said, oh, you know, well, why would you do that to your father? You can't report this or you, know, you, you can't report your grandfather. It's your family. It's like, no, if someone comes and, and does this to you, like the police officer is not the prosecutor. The police officer is the one that needs to investigate these crimes and hand off to someone to look at that. Yeah, everyone deserves the right to be heard. And you know, the amount of people that I've had over the years that have been dismissed by police, that's, uh, again, if it was a trauma-informed person, you would see a lot of difference with that. Or, you know, you, you get a, uh, I always tell people if you're in a, a country town, you know, drive to a bigger city and provide the statement there because uh, a lot of the times these officers have had experience in that. You know, if you think it's a small country town of a 1,000 people, a cop would might not have ever seen it before and they won't know how to deal with it. So... It's all, I always say it's always best to go to the bigger police stations to report. Um, don't ever go around lunchtime or dinner time because, you know, if people are, are hungry, they might be wanting, might not be wanting to give the time. But, you know, the bigger police stations have more officers and more officers who have seen something like this before will know how to deal with it, you know, you know how to respond to it. And that's one big thing that I always sure to people is if when they do report to go to a bigger police station around those times yeah and it also is just like abysmal that that's advice that you have to give like the that the that in australia that law enforcement that that's something that you have to manage as a victim coming forward and and expect and you know that we do have a lot to move through and a piece of advice that i would usually give as well is seek legal advice like if it's not just immediately happened and you're not in a in a dangerous position where triple zero would be called, I'm not saying don't call triple zero, but for primarily like a historical case, for example, it'd be A, seek legal representation or advice, and B, if you're in Victoria, go and speak to the SOCKET team, which is the Sexual Offences and Child Abuse Investigations teams, because they are specifically trained in that. And the off chance that you get a uniformed officer that is not trained on that, that gives you the wrong advice and dissuades you from doing something that you could do or isn't trauma-informed, you know, it's it's a risk. But, again, I don't appreciate that we have to give that advice because police should be trained. Yeah, and it's it's right away, like, if someone's trauma-informed, they're coming, you know, they, they're not going to look confident, they're going to look scared and upset and... You know, when someone's scared and upset, it shouldn't be a, a way of a police officer to say, oh, I'm not going to believe them or that are all over the shop. I mean, like I said before, there is people, there are people 
that when they report, they purposely block things out of their mind and then months after the fact, they say, oh, well, actually, I remember this thing now. Um, and some defence lawyers try to tear that to shreds, but it's like, no, like it's it's a common thing. When something traumatic happens to you, you don't remember everything in detail. And you just imagine if, you know, one in three girls and one in three boys had had parents murdered. Imagine if they rock up at a, a police station and say, oh, my dad just murdered my mum. Oh, you know, you're going to ruin the family, don't say anything. No, this is this is the most disgusting crime you could have. Like you, Like I said before, with no legal justification, that's why sexual offenders are held in a category on their own because there's no legal justification for sexually abusing anyone. You can argue I I defended myself against my husband who was punching me and I stabbed him and unfortunately he died. But, you know, that is a mitigating factor. But there is never any justification or mitigating factor um, in child sex abuse matters, none. I often say and think as well that you can't win, you know, as especially as a woman or a girl. Uh, you really can't win because if you walk into a police station and you're hysterical, well, then you're not believable and you're lying and you're hysterical and you're crazy. If you walk in and you're stone-faced, then it didn't happen because you're, you know, I don't know, you're disgruntled. You know, there's there's so many things that will come against you, you know, crying too much, not crying enough, being the perfect victim. And that's why, for me, this podcast is so important in terms of educating future juries that everybody is very different. And, you know, believing survivors does not mean removing somebody's right of innocence until proven guilty. Mm. Believing survivors means giving everybody who comes forward with an allegation like that access to an investigation and somebody who trusts and believes them because that's their fucking job. Their job is mm. not to judge somebody based on the way that they look or the way that they have behaved because it doesn't align with your beliefs of how a victim of that crime would behave. It's not an acceptable way that we somehow accept of things. You know, like somebody who English is a second language would be less likely yeah. to be, be believed in these courts. And it's just like, well, hang on. People who are disabled and people who English is a second language, that's probably actually, and sorry, not probably, that is a risk factor for them to be taken advantage of. And it's an yeah. additional barrier to them coming forward. So if they are coming forward, in my mind, that means, whoa, this person's had to overcome so much and they're here, thankfully. What an amazing person to overcome so much and come here. But often they're just being seen as like, well, I don't believe her. She can't even say sex because culturally she's not supposed to or something. Like it's I had years ago where um the it was a nonverbal uh, eight-year-old who was under the NDIS. And um, he came home from care that night uh, in his nappy and there was um, signs of trauma and they took him to hospital and a doctor looked at it and said to the parents, I'm, I'm fairly sure your child's been sexually abused. And the police were called. They went straight to look at or they interviewed the um, uh, the carer and he's like, no, I don't know what's happened. Like I took him to the playground, I um, you know, picked him up from school, took him to the playground, took him to the shops and dropped him back home. Cops went to his house and they saw he had a camera out the front and they went to the house, they got the footage. He didn't take him to the shops. He didn't take the playground. He took him back to his house and then half an hour later left. But the police said, you know, we don't have enough proof uh, to charge him because the, su the survivor was nonverbal. You think, well, ha hang on, who else could have been 
And I'm seeing things like that, and I'm thinking that's not right. I'm telling people if you have a police officer that says something like that, every state has a commission of victims' rights um, where they work with the police and they actually represent uh, people who have been aggrieved in crimes. And I said, go straight to the Commission of Victims' Rights because they need to investigate that because if you have contemporaneous medical evidence supporting an abuse of a child, you have the offender has given an inconsistent statement and you have proof that he was at his house um, for 20 minutes on camera, how else could it have happened? Some be, someone being disabled does not – it yeah. should not be a barrier for them getting the justice that they so deserve and need. Well, the children that I've represented who have actually come out um, when it's happened have actually done it when they learned sexual education in primary school and they've got, oh, hang on, that's that's inappropriate touching. And, you know, when, when a six-year-old is going through court and put on the stand, you know, of course they're not going to be able to recall everything down to a T what happened because they're still developing their language. Um, but then you've got on the, on the flip side of that, you've got people trying to remember trauma from 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, the, the, again, if the police were trauma-informed, they could actually help that. There was Fighters Against Child Abuse Australia. They've uh, got programs in New South Wales where to enable um, children when they're giving evidence, they they asked, you know, what, what needs to be done to help, and they had a program where the judge would actually take off his robe and wig or his or her robe and wig and sit down next to the child in the, the witness box and be on their same level and just show that, you know, I'm not a big scary person that's up on this this high horse. They go down to their level. Little things like that help people to actually um, speak about this. You've got some states have um, dogs that actually sit next to survivors in the stand. You know, the putting a, a big sheet up in front of the uh, the accused is not really adequate protection. I mean, there's no point they need to be in the courtroom with that if the lawyers are around. But there's little things like that that can actually help children and help pe- young people report, which should be implemented in every state. Uh, even something as little as a judge taking their robe and wig off is makes a massive difference to to young people. It's, I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done and you know, hopefully will be done, but um, that's obviously something that needs to be done when people are being caught. My role in starting this campaign was to make sure it, it drastically limits the amount of people that need to go to court for this because if you start stamping out this and you start scaring people into realising what they might lose, we're hoping that these crimes would drop off significantly. Yeah. When it becomes something that we recriminalise again, when the the sentences or the consequences meet the the disgusting nature of the offences being committed by these people. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again.
Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.